Hello and welcome to Scott Rock, where your hosts from Climb Scotland, Robert McKenzie, and me, Cal McBain, catch up with climbers every two weeks who have different epic tales to tell us. We hope you enjoy the show. And remember, when you're out climbing, be safe and do your buddy checks. Yo, and welcome back to Scott Rock. We are breaking well into the dirty 30s now with episode 33. Uh, and here to cure me of my insanity, we have a sorely needed mental health professional. Yesterday, I am joined by none other than Lana Dunsmuir. In her mind, Lana has not been climbing for all that long. Uh, however, she has had one hell of a fast track journey so far. And like all climbers, has gone through that roller coaster of mental gymnastics, but all condensed into a fairly short period of time. A mental roller coaster that she battled with, continues to battle with, but with her experience and skills as a mental health nurse, she is coming out the other side a much better and hopefully much happier climber. This episode is going to come as a bit of a two-parter. Uh, Lana wants a chance to tell her story, uh, but also recognises that many of us may struggle with the same anxieties sometimes. Uh, so she's putting together uh, an episode two to give some helpful advice on how to manage the stresses that we face as best as possible. So sit back and enjoy the chat with Lana. And if you empathise with her journey a little and want some a bit more guidance, then please check out episode two coming soon. Cool, right. Thank you, Lana, for, f- I'm going to say, fi- in fact, I'm going to preface this. I'm going to say thank you for finally agreeing to sit down and do this. But I think we both know that you had no choice. This was going to happen at some point regardless anyway. Yeah, it was kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, forced. And actually, this is your second interview with me. Technically, yes. Technically, yes. technically, I forgot you, about that. technically you were the first person that I ever interviewed for Scott Rock. That's right. You were. That's right. But it never saw the light of day because nope. was I, I was testing recording equipment. Yes. Yeah, you were testing it to, to see what it sounded like. And I think just to practice your interview skills yeah. as well. Which are um, obviously flawless. <laughs> obviously. But my storage skills, not so much because we lost that episode somehow. We did. Uh, <laughs> we did, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how we managed to delete that. But yeah, you. so you were the first ever recorded interview for Scott Rock but no one will ever hear it no one will ever yeah. ever hear it so this is similar to this one <laughs> <laughs> no, no I will make sure that people hear this even if we don't release it on Scott Rock I'm gonna release it somewhere it's gonna get like sent to your boss or something <laughs> uh cool right so Lana you are in fact I'm not gonna jump in and give you a description uh, I'm going to let you kind of l- give our audience an idea of who you are firstly as a climber. Okay. As soon as this is a climbing post- <laughs> podcast, we might as well start there. Who you are as a climber, and then we'll get a little bit deeper after that. Okay, I can do that. I can do that. So I am a very unknown climber. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because I don't climb with anybody <laughs> ever. I have one exclusive climbing partner. That's it. I climb mostly in secret. Oh yeah, who's that? 
Tolly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I am... Um, well, I suppose I'm still... You could regard me as still a fairly inexperienced climber. So I've only been climbing. My climbing life is very, very much in its infancy. <laughs> I, I've only been climbing for maybe three years. And if we include outdoors, probably about two and a half years, maybe something like that. Um, I, I did climb a little bit before that, but not nothing particularly. It's funny that you say that you climbing still in its infancy but you've been climbing for three years. Like a lot of people would consider that actually quite a long time. Not if you listen to people on the Scott Rock podcast who have been climbing for like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much in its infancy. Um, but yeah, so so I climbed a little bit um, maybe back in 2015 and I, I loved it, but I fell away from it. Um, and I started, I wanted to, to climb again. So it must've been about... Oh gosh, mid-2019, I wanted to get back into climbing again, but I didn't know anyone that climbed and I just, in my head, climbing was a, a partner sport. Mm. You could only climb if you had a partner to climb with. And being that I didn't know anybody that was a climber and I didn't even know that climbing was a community in itself, um, it just always put me off. So I, I would put it off and put it off and put it off until about kind of mid 2019, I thought. I just decided, oh, can I swear on this podcast or are we not allowed to swear? Try not to, but if you do, it's all right. Okay. I decided to... We had Kev Shields on this. <laughs> Swearing is okay. <laughs> I decided to say, Frigid. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to let the fact that I have no one to climb with be a barrier to climbing. So I did like an intro to climbing with, um, I think it was Scott Townsend that did my first class because it's like a 2D course. And I did that because I could vaguely remember how to tie a figure of eight. And in fact, I, I practiced the night before I did the course and I created some weird and wonderful knots. Don't know what they are. They probably are used for something, not for climbing. <laughs> they were they were really strange looking things and I because I didn't have ropes I practiced it with shoelaces so I like undid all my shoelaces and I was trying to practice so that I wouldn't look completely incompetent on my introduction to climbing course um it didn't work because on my first day I ended up like I, I plugged my belay device in upside down and was trying to belay their own way so like, I still looked like an idiot um <laughs> So I did that. Yeah, I did that, and then from that day, once I completed the course, I immediately signed up to the Glasgow Climbing Centre. That was where I did my my introduction to climbing, um, and went pretty much every single night. I just went on auto belays because I didn't have anybody to climb with, so just went on auto belays every night before and after work. Um, I, I was just so obsessed with it, and I couldn't quite understand why I was obsessed with it because. You know, I failed every single time I tried to climb something. Like I was, I was shockingly bad at it. Um, but I just loved the. I loved that it wasn't so much just like an aerobic workout. Like I loved the problem solving aspect of it, and it just, it stimulated me mentally as well as physically. So I just fell in love with it. Um, and it was, it was very. I suppose it was very welcoming because what that led me to was developing new friendships and people that wanted to and were happy to help me develop in climbing so I was only climbing for about three weeks 
before you know getting to talk to people like um like John Malloy who's doing like his MCI and stuff like that at the moment um, he took me under his wing and, and taught me how to lead climb and I, I'd only been climbing for three weeks and then after three weeks I was leading 6A on the big wall in Glasgow Climbing Centre and for those listening who know that wall, that's a, it's an intimidating wall. That's a big deal. It's a big, that's a deal. big deal. It was just like a line of jugs but I took it all the same, <laughs> I took the tick, I climbed it well. <laughs> so I took that. So I, I developed very, very quickly. Um, but I was so intrigued about the adventure side to climbing as much as I loved it in the sense that it, it got me meeting people, it got me exercise, it got me mentally stimulated. It was the adventure I was looking for and that's what I associated climbing with. I associated it with adventure. So I wanted to get outdoor climbing um, and I think it was, was it Scott that gave me the... Glasgow Silverbacks card. I can't remember who it was now. It might have been Scott. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to need to reach out to this person because I really want to have that experience. Um, but before I had a chance to do that, um, I was climbing with someone at, at the, the centre who had mentioned about the Silverbacks, mentioned they were going to be doing doing a trip and just, just at Benny Beg. And I thought, that's amazing. That's going to be my foot in the door to going outside and actually being able to have that feeling of adventure that I've been looking for in my life. Um, so I did that and I had an amazing day. So I, again, I, like, I was not even, what, six weeks in my, my climbing life and I was going outdoors. I led a sport line. Okay, it was like a grade three plus, but I still, <laughs> I did it outside. And I learned to re-thread so I was re-threading at the top all in the space of like four weeks. I was like, this is amazing. Um, it's a pretty steep progression. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really fast progression. Yeah. But I think that's what happens when you're surrounded by experienced people who are, who get almost, they get psyched on your psych. And, you know, you want to be able to to spend time with those people and, and go climbing. So you kind of, in a sense, are propelled into that world a little mm. bit. But I don't think in... Well, certainly for me it wasn't in a bad way and I was very fortunate that John who was teaching me to to lead and stuff like that at the beginning was an instructor I was very lucky that the person that took me under their wings had the skills to be able to teach me how to climb safely hmm. um in the gym and obviously that developed because I then met my <laughs> my partner <laughs> um on that fateful day on the Glasgow Silverbacks trip and then it went straight from that first day. I like how you, hang on, I like how you twice dodged that I am your partner. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to let the audience know that this is purely nepotism. <laughs> it's your podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's it's been a strange, reflecting back on when I started climbing, it's just been, it's kind of been propelled from one aspect to the other because after I met you I was straight into straight into trad climbing and from trad climbing <laughs> I think I've, I've developed this uh, strange sense of pride over trad climbing because in my head now it's like every other form of climbing is just I mean what is that <laughs> what is sport climbing ah yes you're gonna rile up all the sport climbers <laughs> All the what boulders. Is, what is all, bouldering? What all are, the speed climbers. What 
what are these forms of climbing? <laughs> because trad just became my life. I loved it because again, it was like that problem solving. You didn't have to be on a particularly hard route to get a little bit scared or to feel like you had tried hard that day. You could just be on a bold VS and you felt just as scared as you would try in like a 6C in the climbing center. Like it was, it was a really eye-opening experience and since then I guess I never looked back and I've been climbing since. So would you say that trad climbing is better than sport climbing and bouldering and that bouldering and sport climbing suck? Trad climbing is the superior of all oh, climbing. I didn't, <laughs> know this climbing. Gonna, I didn't know this was going to turn into a controversial podcast, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> trad climbing is like, yeah. trad climbing, I feel like sport and bouldering are like the performance climbing and I know trad is kind of going into that genre if you like as well of performance but trad I always think holds its sense of adventure it holds that more than anything else and I think that's what makes trad climbing so much more special is that it's not necessarily about how hard you climb it's about the story of the climb and I think that's something that's so so much more compelling than what you necessarily get from a sport route and a boulder route. And I know every climb, every route has its story. But there's always something more to to trad. In my opinion, there's always something more <laughs> to trad than there is other Yeah, types that's of, it. You backpedal. You backpedal. <laughs> I'm, I'm sweating. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, yeah, like you said, it's been what, just over three years, maybe three and a half years you've been climbing. And... Yeah. It's that only first... been about two and a half since I've been outdoor climbing. It's all in all, it's only been about three years of climbing. But yeah, it's been a really, it's been a really fast progression. And, and since then I've done, I've not done huge, you know, climbing feats. I've not like... What, what's what's the highlight reel? Out of that three, three years, like you said, it's been a steep progression. You've done mm -hmm. a lot of things a lot quicker than most people would. Mm -hmm. What have been the highlights? Um, Probably one of my highlights would be there's been a few so I've climbed a few e2s now which have been brilliant I've done some first ascents one of which was an accidental e2 <laughs> <laughs> it was probably a slightly scarier experience because I didn't mean to do it <laughs> um so probably getting into the realms of, of first ascents and I think going through the physical and mental process that trad climbing takes you on as you're trying to you know step up your grades because um, I've never been someone that's been grade orientated and wanting to reach super high feats in trad climbing. However, it is amazing how sometimes that bug can get you and you don't realise until you think, ah, oh, I'm so disappointed in myself that I didn't manage to get that <laughs> that route or, or whatever might be going through your mind at the time. Um, so, yeah, doing some first ascents, doing some hard... Um, some relatively hard trad even just learning the art of project and yeah. roots has been a new experience for me as well um i've been doing like my I, i'm an rci trainee i haven't done my assessment yet because i'm lazy <laughs> <laughs> no it's not really because i'm lazy it's i i work a full-time job and, and i don't always get time to practice a lot of my skills so it's it's maybe partly a confidence thing as well as being lazy. Um, so yeah, I've been 
I think I've just kind of a part of me has been consumed by a bit of the, the climbing world, but I'm a bit of a an introverted climber. You know, people will not know me in isolation because I don't climb with anybody. Um, for me, even at my love of the outdoors has extended climbing for years. I was more of a hill walker before climbing, but it was always a solitary activity. Hmm. Um, and I'm honestly so surprised I've not broke into the world of soloing because it sounds like my ideal adventure, like just getting to go and be on my own <laughs> and just go climb something, have an adventure. Nobody knows about it. <laughs> and, and just come back home at the end of the day. So I'm surprised I haven't gone that way, but um, I think I'm a bit old for that now. I think I think was that, my was that a young person's game. That's is a it? young person's game. I think my my um, I think my uh, risk reward calculator in my brain is not quite <laughs> <laughs> leaning towards that being the appropriate choice. Um, but yeah, it's I, I've done a few things. I've not done huge achievements i'm I'm not a known climber i'm just your local introverted <laughs> <laughs> climber well there's a good segue you you, you mentioned you got a full-time job and i think I, I mean you can correct me if i'm wrong here but have you used your skills that you've learned through your job to help you in that really fast progression because like i said it's been a, a much much faster progression through your own climbing ability and through the climbing different climbing disciplines than most climbers will ever do. So what is your job? Like, what do you do for a living? Um, so I work as a, a mental health nurse. Um, so my role is trying to help support people with their mental health, as it sounds, <laughs> um, uh, and to try and get them through difficult phases in their life and teaching them skills and ways to cope. So that might be with illnesses such as anxiety depression or people maybe not with those illnesses but with symptoms um to try and help them cope and overcome some of those issues and um, i obviously work with people who have severe and enduring mental illnesses as well and um, so people who maybe have diagnosis of schizophrenia and um, bipolar affective disorder things like that and um, so my approach in caring for patients very much is is individualized to that person's specific needs um, so my job is to try and help them overcome the difficulties and or barriers <laughs> <laughs> using an evidence-based approach. Yeah. So obviously, like, not every mental health nurse does the same job. There's No. Like, like, like climbing's got different disciplines, there's different areas of <laughs> the mental health system. So what what is your area? What, what's your your actual role? So... And what does that look like day to day? Yeah, so... You're right. Different mental health nurses have different roles. Some some mental health nurses are also qualified therapists and will um, be trained in specific therapies. Um, you also have primary care level nurses that deal with maybe people who are suffering, but it's perhaps maybe more in the milder end of the spectrum. My job, I, I work in secondary care mental health services. So that means that I work with people who are maybe more kind of on the moderate to severe end of struggling with their mental well-being. Specifically, I work with an intensive home treatment. So that means that I work with people specifically who are very acutely unwell. And that may be as a result of a relapsing um, severe and enduring mental illness, or it may be that someone is suffering from maybe suicidal thoughts and having plans to end their life um, and the the treatment we'll offer is to to try and ensure that person remains safe and trying to offer them various coping strategies and I suppose a way out other than taking their life um, 
so yeah with that kind of encompasses lots of different techniques lots of different um, principles of different approaches most of the time we use um, principles of cognitive behavioral therapy largely because a lot of those strategies can be can be commenced immediately you know you're not having to necessarily wait ages for results because when people are struggling acutely they can't just wait six weeks for an antidepressant to kick in they yeah. need to look at things that can help them pull what's, their mindset what's an example of something like that um so an example of something like that so it can range from anything um and there may be people listening to this who have Im- had input from a similar team to mine um and one of the biggest things it can be one of the biggest things we suggest to people but also one of the most frustrating things we suggest to people um and one of the big things is looking at how you are effectively redirecting your mindset so that might be using a distraction technique so for some people if they feel that they are able to engage with something that can be helpful as opposed to harmful so instead of reaching for something that could cause them harm reach for something that can help for some people that's picking up the phone and talking to a friend for other people it is getting out uh, one of the therapeutic art books and utilizing one of them or it's switching on the telly for yeah, others yeah. it's looking at immediate things that can help derail your mindset from focusing too much on the thought that might be at risk of causing you harm yeah um, so that's one of the things um we do talk about mindfulness a lot as well um we don't offer it in our team mindfulness as a course because we might not see people long enough to deliver it um but we use because obviously you're acute yeah so it's short and sharp yeah yeah um our our kind of role is to try and get people stable enough to be able to perhaps engage with something more meaningful um if they need it not everyone who comes into crisis needs a mental health intervention thereafter some people they just need that very short burst of input and they're they're okay after that it everybody is completely individual you can't it's hard to categorize it um so there's lots of different things and what we offer to each person is tailored based on that individual's needs yeah so obviously when you're talking about you work with people who are potentially on the severe end the Mm -hmm. acute end it's people who are have a mental illness but also people who are just struggling with their their mental health what's the difference between the two yeah people often use the terms mental health and mental illness interchangeably but they are in fact different the the kind of main difference between the two is that a mental illness is something that's been formally diagnosed um and that diagnosis suggests that the symptoms you have have significantly impacted your ability to function which is often kind of one of those criteria when uh, a psychiatrist may be looking at offering you a diagnosis um, and that diagnosis can lead to certain treatment pathways. Our mental health is, it's a bit more generic than that. We don't necessarily need to have a diagnosis or put a diagnosis to something. Um, Our mental health is something that's like our physical health. If we don't nourish it or maintain it, it can deteriorate. If you engage in behaviours that help promote good physical well-being, you will, for example, if you're not 
smoking, if you're minimising the use of alcohol, if you're exercising regularly, you may reduce your risk of developing conditions like heart failure, heart disease, things like this. It's the same with mental well-being. You may be able to prevent having mental illness in your future if you are doing things that help nourish your mental well-being in the present. Um, so it's it's not as different from managing your physical well-being as we think it is. We think it's this obscure thing or this airy-fairy thing to try and manage our mental well-being, but it's not. And a lot of us actually know how to manage our mental well-being. We're just not very good at practicing it. And that's largely because, you know, when we're kids, when we're at school, we learn about the body. We understand perhaps a little bit more about the body. We learn through physical education, the importance of exercise and routine in our daily life. Certainly from even my generation, and I'm only <clears throat> 31. <laughs> In my generation... Happy never, birthday, by the way. <laughs> thanks. You never, ever learned about mental health, how to, how to prevent illness, how to manage symptoms of low mood, how to manage negative feelings, because we've been developed to think that having negative thoughts or feeling negatively is a bad thing that we need to get rid of. Hmm. It's not. It's healthy to feel negative about things. It's healthy for our mood to be low sometimes because it's appropriate to the situation we're in, perhaps. Where that can get out of hand is where that that feeling of, of negativity prolongs and extends into areas of life where it's now no longer appropriate for it to be there. And that's where it can then take people down a dark hole um, and it can feel difficult to get out by yourself. And that's where sometimes people may need some professional mm. support or even before professional support, that's where their social networks come in and that's where they are so important at helping to, to rescue them from that hole. But they are they are different. If we manage our mental health, we can prevent major mental illness. Yeah. There are ways that obviously you can reduce the risk of developing a mental illness in your future by taking control of some of those factors in the moment. So if you do engage in helpful strategies that help keep your mind healthy if you like for lack of a better term then you will reduce your risk of developing illnesses in the future so it's looking at some of that the preventative groundwork that can help um, not just manage your symptoms in the here and now but hopefully reduce your risk of potentially developing an illness later on in life and obviously if you do end up getting down that going down that dark path and needing help that's what you're there for yeah you you are you are the help one of one, you are of, one of many avenues of help. Help. Yes. Help. help. Yes. One of many, <laughs> many avenues. Because uh, one of the biggest things that's coming out at the moment is self-directed help, um, which is essentially you can be referred by GP, but you can also ac- access these things just by self-referral. Um, when you go on NHS Inform, they have really good links to to self-help websites and to self-help online tools. Yeah. Um. So self-directed help is a big thing at the moment as a, as a primary care level intervention. Um, and that's because not everyone, some people can be struggling with symptoms of mental Ill health, but they don't always need a huge intervention. Sometimes they just need a little bit of guidance and direction. And that doesn't necessarily have to be with a, a professional. Sometimes it can just be accessing resources or maybe doing an online, di- online guided yeah. self-help that's kind of very low level. Yeah. So, with the the skills that you've got through your 
your job, um, the therapies that you give, the the mindfulness information that you know, uh, how has that had an impact on you being able to go through this really steep learning curve that you've had in climbing? Because obviously there's a lot of mental barriers that people come across in climbing, whether it's, you know, the fear of falling off, the fear of heights, the fear of um, being outside, the risks that are presented there, the risks of just being, the, the, the scariness, the pressures of just being in a busy environment in a climbing wall. Um, have you found these skills that you've got have been beneficial? And if so, how? At first, no. At first, no. <laughs> At first, no. <laughs> um, and I think that's because... And I, I said this phrase to you to you earlier on, um, and I'll, I'll repeat it for the purpose of the podcast, which is, for me, I don't feel that knowledge is necessarily power. I feel practice is power. Hmm. So you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you're not practicing any of it, it's useless. <laughs> it's absolutely useless. Um, and actually, what climbing did for me was realise how little I have been out of my comfort zone in my life. Because as soon as I pushed myself and started dipping my toe or just flat out jumping out the comfort zone (laughs) I realized how anxious I actually was because I had I mean prior to climbing I'd never considered myself to be an anxious person out with the realms of normal anxiety so like feeling anxious about an interview and things like that out with the realms of a normal anxiety I had never experienced it really um so it felt really quite hard to be able to practice what I preached so I kind of got an insight into what a lot of my patients were struggling with because it's really damn hard to practice (laughs) a lot of these techniques it's so much easier if you have a professional on your shoulder with you at the time saying right this is what I want you to do in this situation but when they're not there and you're just trying to implement it on your own Jesus it's just Hard. So were you consciously trying to implement some of these things while you were? Not at first. At first, I was just, I think at first, I was just very much like, well, of course I'm going to be anxious about it. I mean, there's a complete natural anxiety. And I think that's what makes getting over, for example, the fear of falling so hard because well, there's a consequence to falling. I've been biologically designed to believe throughout my life, through evolution, falling off a wall is a bad thing. <laughs> yes. Falling <laughs> off a wall can lead to harm or death. <laughs> That's how we've evolved. That's why, generally speaking, people try not to be on the edge of a cliff. You make us sound like really odd people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, climbing is... Climbing, I don't think, is an odd sport. It's not an odd sport. It's slowly, I think, getting more more mainstream and a bit no it's an odd sport (laughs) it's an odd sport (laughs) we have a desire to go up things but just in really difficult awkward ways um each one more difficult and awkward than the last (laughs) we'll have a vs here we'll have an e8 over here (laughs) um so yeah i oh gosh i think i've completely missed the the question i've I've gone off on a tangent this is why i wasn't going to do the interview because i go off on tangents and it's It's impossible to follow me tangents are good Um, (laughs) so the the question was were you consciously trying to implement at first no when i started to consciously try and implement it is when i found myself a 
after trad climbing for maybe a few months, I found myself because I because I wasn't climbing well and it, it I felt it was taking me some time to try and understand a good gear placement from a bad and every time I thought I was doing well there was always something to 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 say that I wasn't and it just it constantly felt like I was getting a load of knocks which I think if you're just going into trad climbing even if you've been climbing for like 10 years and you go into trad climbing you do go through this huge learning curve um and it takes a while to to pick up all that stuff but I I berated myself a lot for not being able to pick this stuff up immediately and do it well every single time so it got to the point where I wasn't just anxious on the route anymore because I understood feeling anxious on a route because well I'm new to trad climbing I'm leading my gear might not be great and I could fall here so I understood the anxiety I had there which made that anxiety easier to deal with the anxiety I struggled most with is that I started to become really, really anxious when approaching the crag. So on the car on the way to the crag, mentally I was just getting more and more frustrated, more and more worried, more and more negative about it. So by the time that I even got out of the car, racked up and everything, I just thought, oh, I would just love to go back in the car and go back home now. Because it was just such a mental feat just to get to the base of the route that I was mentally exhausted. And also, I'd already convinced myself that I had failed. So, if I'm going to fail, why? Why even try? Why bother? So, it took a long time. It took a really long time to go over that. Um, But the things that I was doing to try and change it, that I would say have helped. Because I don't have that anxiety when I approach a crag anymore. Um, the things that I would say helped me most. So I use a lot of mindfulness and it's something that I guide patients on a lot because it is really helpful at managing that sudden overwhelming feeling of anxiety that can come over you. It's helpful for a lot of different things for the disclaimer, but (laughs) in the context of what I'm discussing, I'm going to talk about it in the context of managing anxiety. Um, So what I found really, really helpful was one, I tried to explore why I was feeling anxious because it took me the longest time to work out why I was feeling anxious when I was approaching the crag because I'm not on the route, so there's no risk. I can always turn back. I'm not on the route. I can bail. You know, there was lots of options to say, you don't have to feel this way. You don't have to do it. But none of it was actually answering the question as to why I was struggling with that level of anxiety. And even now, I think, reflecting on it, I don't think there was any one answer to that. I think it was a combination of things. It was a combination of, you know, maybe it was a product of trying way too many different types of climbing way too soon and not having a lot of consolidation time to be able to understand fully what I was doing and and being able to practice those skills more thoroughly. climbing people I were climbing with were really experienced really strong climbers so I think there was a a part of me that that felt I needed to to get to that level really quickly and to do that I have to be able to climb harder I have to be more confident in myself um but I wasn't although I felt that I needed to do those things I wasn't treating myself with the kindness and respect that I needed to actually be able to get there 
you know, I was just forcing myself into situations that I didn't need to be in. I also felt that as as a woman in climbing, I I almost felt this this obligation that I had to be really strong and really powerful, you know, being part of that kind of minority group in climbing. I felt that I had to be like other really, really strong women, that if I wasn't pushing the boundaries of what women can do, then I'm failing at that too. So I, I battled with that in my mind as well. And I kind of finally, I, I did come to a resolve on that because I actually just thought, who the fuck do I think I am? Like, do I think that I, like, do I think that highly of myself that I'm putting myself on that same pedestal as like Hazel Finley and people like that? Come on, Lana. Um, so I kind of did have a bit of a conversation with myself to realize just, just being a minority in sport in general is lifting women in itself. Just obviously as a as a woman, I'm I'm speaking particularly about that minority group in climbing. But just being part of it is elevating women in the sport. I didn't have to be like all the super hardcore climbers around me to get women involved. I was involved without I I got involved without having any of that around me. So why again am I putting myself in some unrealistic world where I have to be like climbing E10? Like I'm not good unless I'm at that level. It's strange. It's, it's, it's I guess it's those mental gymnastics that, that climbing puts you through. Um, and you, you overthink absolutely everything because effectively climbing's teaching you to think about every move you make, about every gear placement you make. And I guess, yes, I'm thinking more along the lines of trad climbing. And luckily it didn't cause me any physical harm. You know, I never had really bad falls. I've never done anything stupid on a route or did like a real, oh no, I have done a bad anchor once. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done bad anchors, that's fine. Did a really bad anchor once. But nobody fell, so it was fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And in terms of looking at, how I was working specifically at that anxiety, just going up to the crag. Well, I had to understand that I didn't have to put myself in that situation. So what is it about this that's, that I am putting myself in this situation? Am I doing it to prove a point? Am I doing it because it's something for me? Because if I'm doing it to prove, an, prove a point, I'm never gonna feel okay with this. Like if I'm doing it just to be cool or to just show that I can climb with, strong climbers I'm gonna do this stuff because strong climbers do this stuff if I'm doing it for those reasons I'm never gonna feel comfortable because I'm never accepting the fact that I'm not that yeah so I need to understand what kind of climber I am what I'm getting out of climbing and why I am repeatedly putting myself in this situation and I understood that I was doing it because I loved climbing so much that I never wanted to fail at it and it almost feels, there's so many areas we can feel that we're failing at life. You know, we might not be in the job we want or at the level within that job we want or, or we might think that there's other things that we can do. So when it's your hobby, something that you do out of nothing but passion and you feel like you're rubbish at it, it's just like, how can I be rubbish at something that's just a passion? Like, it's just a hobby. How can I be so afraid of that? And so there was all these very um, 
kind of ex- existential <laughs> questions that led me to question everything about myself. Um, but instead of retreating from all of that, I didn't avoid those feelings. I sat with them. I sat with the feeling of fear. I sat with the feeling of negativity that I had developed around climbing. I sat with it. I struggled a lot with that. And the way I still, to this day, try and cope with it is particularly when I'm on the route. So I practice a little bit of what we call grounding. And there'll be a lot of people listening to this who either practice grounding or know really clearly what it is. Um, But to just kind of explain it in its simplest form, essentially it's a way of bringing you back to the here and now and connecting with things that are with you in that moment. So for some people, they'll practice grounding by going out into the garden and feeling the grass between their toes and trying to really focus on every sensation that that offers you. Um, The way I use that technique in climbing is that if I'm on a route and I'm feeling really anxious and I'm struggling to make the move, if I can, I try and pause. So I try and breathe and I try and just feel the hold that I'm on. And if I can be in my position and reach for the next one and feel that and just try and be with it for, whether it's a second, two seconds, three seconds, however long I can be with that next hold, to really try and connect with it and see how it feels. Does it feel like a bad hold? Why am I scared of this hold? Because it feels really good or, it's a sloper, that's why I'm really bricking it. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes being able to understand why the fear is there can be really relieving. Because if I understand why I'm afraid, then I can understand how to overcome it. So if it's because it's a sloper, then the next thing I need to think about is, okay, I know that hold's going to be really bad. I'm going to look down, I'm going to see where my feet are and see how I can make the best out of this situation. Where's my last bit of gear? Think about that bit of gear. I know it's a good piece. I know it's a good piece. So if the worst happens, I'm pretty certain. I know with tried gear, you can never be 100%, but I know that I'm in a safe situation here or as safe as I can be, that if I make a mistake, it will be relatively okay. Obviously, that changes if you get to the elite level of trad climbing where the stakes are a lot higher where the gear might be tiny, it might be rubbish, or it's so far apart that it really doesn't make a difference. (laughs) Um, And I wish I could say it was a quick process to to formulate a better relationship with my climbing, but it's taken a really long time, a really long time to do it, because there are so many, when I broke it down, there were so many different issues to explore. So there was the confidence factor. There was the consolidation time between trying different things there was the actual theoretical understanding of what I was doing with try climbing <laughs> understanding the systems you know and and being able to apply that to different areas different situations you know it's different if you if you learn to set up you know an anchor with two trees it's great it will always be an amazing anchor but it's different when you go to the top of a crag and there's nothing. There's no trees. <laughs> there's no trees. And it's different when you have to, you know, you need experience um, to be able to build those skills that make you feel more confident in your own capabilities. So I think part of what has helped has been time. 
which is probably one of the really frustrating things to say, is that time has helped, but commitment has also helped. Like I did my RCI training not because I wanted to be a trainer, not because I wanted to be an instructor, mm. but because I needed to be in a situation where I was with other people and learning, having, you know, two amazing instructors. So I, I was with, like everybody, I think I did it with Al Halewood, <laughs> like <Yeah>. everybody. <laughs> um, and and Pete was, was um, kind of supporting Al as well. So that helped a lot because it made me realise independently where a lot of my weaknesses are and really what I, I needed to work on. Because even when I did my RCI training, I was still so premature in my climbing. Do you think, like, because you were saying that you were climbing with, you know, experienced climbers, pretty strong climbers, and you had this attitude of either I need to be able to do this kind of stuff too because these are my climbing partners or this is where I want to get to, um, and you are really hard on yourself when you felt like you'd failed to the point where you were getting super anxious before you even got to the crag because you considered that you already failed. Do you think that was your ego getting in the way of the learning process? Uh, like, you know, yeah. we, we've all got egos. We've all got egos yeah. in, in climbing and life and whatever. But if you kind of pin your ego and your, your own ability and where you sh think you should be to something that, isn't then I, I mean I like I, I've seen I, as a coach I've seen it in other people as well where you know that really stands in the way of being able to take that step back and assess where are my weaknesses what do I need to learn can I learn I think ego plays a huge role in climbers having that sense of of feeling that they've failed um, and I would definitely say ego was a huge part of mine because because I'd done lots of things so quickly in climbing, I couldn't understand why I wasn't developing quickly in trad. And I, I was in a sense because I think, you know, I wasn't even climbing in as a whole for a year and I had ticked like an E2. Like I, I was doing really well, but I couldn't acknowledge the things I did well because they weren't good enough. So there was this unrealistic expectation that I had set for myself because I in my head I thought, well, I've done everything else so quick, so this should be no bother. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think ego gets in our way so many times because we don't have those conversations with ourselves to understand ourselves better, to, to get to know where we're at as a climber, how we want to progress and how we get there as well. Um, so yeah, ego definitely got in my way and I think gets in the way of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. For sure, like... You know, you are, I'm not going to say a classic example, because I think you still went through this journey way quicker than most people ever, ever will. Um, but when you've come up through climbing on your own on autobelays, meeting climbing partners, learning to top rope, learning to lead climb, maybe doing a bit of sport climbing outside and then getting to trad, when every step up to there has been quite easy and fast and you've ticked it really really quickly and you can get out and do it really quickly and you come to trad and it's such a huge learning curve with so many things to learn just that slowing of that learning pace can be seen as failure because you're not picking it up as quickly as everything else 
and that will have a huge impact if you don't if you're not able to drop the the idea of where you should be or how quickly you should yeah. be learning if you're not able to drop that you're not able to take that step back and go cool this is going to take a while I, i'm going to take it step by step i'm going to learn a few things i'm going to consolidate it i'm going to do this da, da, da. and you this is why i'm not using you as the classic example because you shot through all of that really quickly um and i think like you said at the start one of your the, the big things that you came across is you didn't have the time to consolidate all that information yeah yeah and i think you know interestingly enough i feel that once i slowed my learning down and said to myself i can't keep doing this because i'm making myself feel bad all the time and then i was getting zero enjoyment out of climbing so i fell away from climbing for a little while as well because i was just like why am i going to keep doing something that makes me feel so shit about myself <laughs> like, <laughs> if i'm always feeling like shit, why would i do it like i need to i need to be you know mentally strong for my work if i'm not mentally strong within myself how can i care for patients can't do it so i was just i took i took a wee break from from climbing um it was only like last uh, this this summer actually that I started to get a bit of psych for climbing again, and it's because my relationship with it had changed, because I started to realise, you know, through 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 a loss, I started to realise why am I so afraid of this? Like I this is something that that brought me adventure, that brought me a sense of joy. Why? have I held myself to this unrealistic expectation of how I should be as a climber? I decide how I am as a climber. I don't need to compare myself to people out there. I'm kind of okay with not being exceptional. <laughs> I don't have to be, you know, the climber you see on UKC doing amazing things. Like, I don't have to be the, the Greg Boswell <laughs> of the climbing community. I don't have to try and work to become some entity that I'm not. I just have to have some fun again. Um, and once I started doing that, my climbing got so much better. Like I wasn't climbing harder grades, but the way I was climbing was better. I was more confident with placing my gear. I was, <laughs> I was more relaxed when I approached the crag. And it's because I realised that it wasn't just a realisation, I'm minimising that, but because over time I was able to let go of those unrealistic expectations and put my ego back in its box for a little bit. Ego's a good thing. It can motivate us, it can drive us, it can push us out of that comfort zone. Without that ego, I wouldn't even have had the balls to go climbing by myself. Ego's a good thing, but where it becomes harmful is when we start to develop a negative relationship with it and it gets in our way from something that we would usually love and yeah. enjoy or otherwise love and enjoy. Um, how are we able to, I mean, two questions. How are we able to recognise that that is the barrier or a barrier and how do we drop that? Or maybe not drop that, but drop it enough that we can start to break down our weaknesses and where we need to learn and give ourselves the time to mm -hmm. actually learn. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, you have to identify, you have to take some time. And for some people, there's there's no 
set amount of time. For some people, they can identify that within a second. For some other people, they can it takes them months or years to identify what the issue is. But it's identifying what is the thing that is holding you back? What is it that's making you feel afraid? What is it that's making you feel anxious? What is it that's making you develop this negative relationship with the sport that you, you once loved? You know, for some people, you know, it could be a story similar to mine. It's just you've done things way too quick and all of a sudden you felt overwhelmed. Some people, unfortunately, might have had traumatic incidences while climbing. They might have had awful falls. They might have, you know, if you're out in winter, you might have been subjected to horrendous conditions. There's there's so many kind of anecdotal pieces of information that would contribute to how you would best manage that. But first and foremost, you have to identify what it is. Yeah. Putting a name to what it is. Because that can be powerful in itself. Just being able to say, I get it. I get why I'm feeling that way. Okay, I don't know how to manage it yet, but at least I understand what it is that's putting me off hmm. my cycle, that's putting me, that's isolating me from the community that I that I want to spend time with. So identifying what it is is the main thing. Once you identify it, how you manage it is different from person to person. Um, generally, what I would suggest you can go through, you know, there's lots of different management strategies, but thinking about what that means to you and whatever you've identified that as being. First and foremost, I would say, focus on the little things, focus on what you know about managing anxiety. So you know if you let yourself go zero to a hundred that you're going to feel worse and worse and worse. So you need to stop. You need to breathe and understand, am I gonna am I gonna feel worse for not trying? Yeah. Am I gonna feel worse if I just get in the car and go home? Because the answer to that question could be different. I asked myself that question and I genuinely thought I'd be happier just getting in the car and going home. I didn't do that. I might not have led climbed that day. I might have just seconded as an alternative so that I didn't have to deal with that failure but still got to be on the rock, still mm. got to climb. And that's the way I would manage that so that I didn't feel like a total failure that day. Yeah. Okay, I would still plague myself and think, God, I could have led something. But at least I didn't do nothing. Yeah, there's stepping, you know, to, to work on things. And this is working on anything, not just mm. any mental health side. It's... Mm stepping outside of the comfort zone to push yourself but there's there's stepping too far I, yeah you know like like your example you uh, you know there was going to the crag and getting on the thing anyway already feeling anxious that was just going to make you feel so much worse but that was maybe stepping too far out of mm -hmm. the comfort zone instead of just going home you could have stepped a little bit out and just done some seconding yeah and that might have been enough to take a step forward yeah. make you feel less anxious, maybe even give you the confidence to, well, maybe you do feel ready to try the thing. Yeah. yeah. If you give something a try in a way that's comfortable for you, you're more likely to do the thing. You're more likely, so by seconding, you might be more likely to go, screw it, I fancy leading that, yeah. than if you didn't do it at all. But there was plenty of times when I had that sensation I would just go and chat to people. Yeah. I would just, I would not climb at all. 
but I still had a good time because I was chatting to people. So what I'm saying to you um, in terms of the management side, because unfortunately, I can't give any specific advice because it depends what you're struggling yeah, with. Yeah, of course. Um, but what I would say to you is a huge thing to try and absolve yourself of that pressure that the ego puts us under is just bring those expectations down. Yes, you might be able to at your best climb or lead VS, or you might be able to be, if you're a sport climber, you might be able to lead 6C, you might be leading boulder grades. <laughs> boulder grades. A 6C boulder. <laughs> 6C boulder, wherever you're listening, a V five <laughs> whatever whatever that is i'm not bolder <laughs> um, i think we got that <laughs> i don't have the finesse that's required to be a boulder um or if you're if you're climbing e8s sometimes you have to bring the expectation down to manage what you're feeling in that moment so that could be just having a day of second and it could be it could be leading way below your grade just to try and still keep you connected with a rock but not in a way that's going to overwhelm you or it can be just acknowledging when you get there today is not the day for me to climb I'm just going to have a sociable day but yeah bringing some of those expectations down a little bit of what is normally achievable for you because you know when you are at your strongest you can do things well but right now perhaps mentally at the moment when you're climbing you're not mentally at your strongest So bring the expectation down so that you can manage it and it's not overwhelming to you. Um, I think one of the things that that is kind of specific to you, but I think, again, as a coach, I've seen so many people struggling with is the expectation of what they should be able to do or whatever is a big thing, obviously, like you're saying, but the expectation of how quickly I should be able to overcome this. Like, I think people really don't, quite appreciate how long it takes to to learn certain skills practice certain skills and actually get confident with those skills yeah and like it's obviously different for every person but there's so many people that are just getting really frustrated in themselves because they're just not getting this they, they understand it but they just don't trust it yet uh it takes a long, long time to get comfortable with doing a thing. Like, climb, you know, trad climbing, your example, placing a bit of gear and then climbing above that bit of gear. You might know that bit of gear is bomber, but it's still scary getting above it. And that can be a really frustrating thing when you've been learning a skill. Like, I understand that's good. Why am I still being scared? It takes time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in that sense... It takes, so there's there's been able to understand what it is. There's been able to lower the expectations, but there's the patience that you have to give yourself to be able to deal with it. You need to give yourself time. And I suppose you need to be compassionate towards yourself as well. Because if you're constantly telling yourself you're not good enough and constantly forcing yourself to supersede your, your own expectation or other people's expectations, you're going to be forever in that negative cycle and struggle again and again to get out of it. Time, although, is one of the most frustrating things you can ever hear, 
is going to be one of the best things for you because what time will bring you is experience. Because if you keep going climbing, you're going to get more and more experience. And hey, you might even accidentally fall on that bit of track gear and realize, shit, that holds. <laughs> and sometimes... I didn't die. <laughs> so I think that there's, there's, a key, there's a key there that a lot of people, a lot of... In fact, no, I'm going to say most climbers, to be honest. <laughs> most climbers whether they're experienced or they're just coming into it, young, old, doesn't matter. I think there's a thing that a lot of people aren't don't quite understand is that we start climbing, even other sports, we start doing a thing because we enjoy the thing. Mm-hmm. And then we get completely 100% sidetracked in progressing in that thing. Because, it, you know, climbing, for example, you, you start top roping indoors. Once you start progressing, you can lead that opens up more of the wall. Once you learn to sport climb, you can go outside sport climbing. Once you learn to track climb, you can go to any crag and go climbing. It opens up more doors. Mm-hmm. But at some point when that progression starts to become a, a detriment to your enjoyment, you know, when you're feeling like a failure because you're not progressing anymore, like I think a lot of people need to take that step back and consider what what is it in this that I actually enjoy and is progressing anymore actually going to improve that you know for me the thing that i love most about climbing is the community the social side of it i i love just being part of it i obviously love the climbing and all that as well and actually going out and doing things i like trying hard and i like failing and falling off shit and all that but the thing that that truly gets me about climbing is the community and the people within it and, and the big family that I've got. Yeah. And whether I progress in climbing or <laughs> take a higher grade or it does not change that at all. Yeah. So why would I put so much pressure on progressing? And I think a lot of a lot of people would be, become a lot happier climbers if they realised what the thing in climbing is that they actually enjoy. Absolutely. And for some people you know, the fun lies in on-siting, the fun lies in getting to the next grade. It's not, it, what the connection that people get out of climbing is different for each and every people. Some of us have a shared connection in that. Um, so yeah, it's going back to the basics of why are you doing it? Mm. Like, mm. if this is genuinely making you miserable, what's getting you to the crag yeah. every time? Like, because... For some people, if they're feeling that low about their climbing, just getting to the crag is a huge feat. So there's something. There's something there. Climbing's not lost. It's there because you still have the motivation to even get up and even have a look at one of the routes. So there's something there. And if you've got that something there, you can work on it. You can absolutely work on it. And what's important to you about climbing can be different from every other Tom, Dick and Harry and what you get out of it might be different but you need to identify with that again. Take it back to that first time you went climbing and you were like, oh my god, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take it back to that moment and think about what was amazing about it? Yeah. What did I love? And what have I lost at this moment that's yeah. making me like, lose that? For you, it's it's the adventure side. Yeah, you know, it's you, absolutely the, the adventure. The big thing for you is the adventure side mm-hmm. and yes, climbing harder things, taking higher grades, 
maybe feels a bit more adventurous sometimes because you're a lot further away yeah. from really crappy gear <laughs> yeah but you can still have that adventure going out and climbing a few diffs in the mountains somewhere absolutely yeah and i think so is that progression really going to benefit your climbing experience i think yeah and i think yeah. that's the question i think a I lot of people need to ask people that. need to ask that question and also being okay with the fact that sometimes you have to just be okay with being the second being the second is cool as yeah you had a great awesome. day the other day <laughs> i had an amazing day the other day and that's the thing i would have loved to have led so we did savage slip um in winter conditions the other day just before christmas and i would have loved to have led that but my goodness not a hope in hell would i have been able to lead that but i seconded it and i had a great time and i think it's it's been able to change the way we view second in a route because you're still climbing. Yes, it's a bit. It feels a bit safer. That's only if you trust your B layer at the top to have built a decent anchor. Yeah. But if your lead climber's been good, um, but you can still put the fun back in climbing, even if your main goal is to just keep going up grades or just to on site. You can still have fun with it, and maybe it's about taking a break from that mentality to go. Do you know what? I'm not going to have my on-site and head-on for the moment. For the moment, I'm just going to have a project and head-on, and I'm just going to set up a top rope on a really hard line or set up a shunt on a really hard line yeah. and just try and problem-solve the moves. Because if you are struggling, even if you're struggling out with the realms of climbing, for me, nothing feels better than throwing myself on something hard, whether I set up a top rope or set up a shunt. The problem-solving aspect just allows me to focus on something so small that it takes me away from whatever's going on in my mind, whatever's going on in my life that, that might be causing me upset, anxiety, whatever it might be causing me. Climbing's gifted me with that. And how dare I throw it back in its face <laughs> by getting angry at it because I can't climb it the way I want to. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we really need to put ourselves back in that box and go, we need to remember it's nature that's around us it's not designed to suit us yeah. it's not designed to meet our needs and if you if you can't do it it turns out you can do it that's okay and that's another way i cope with it because i climb down a lot of stuff yeah i am an amazing down climber. that's the thing so anyone out there that's struggling with their anxiety and struggles with the concept of falling just climb back down. It's amazing. You get so strong. <laughs> the amount of times I have done the crux move, actually done it, and then realised, oh, I'm pumped now, I'm too yep. tired, and climb either just down that move, climb down the crux, that's what I'm saying, <laughs> mm -hmm. strong enough to climb the crux and then climb back down the crux, yep. but convince myself I'm not strong enough to top out the route. So you... <laughs> We're going full circle back to the start when you were talking about grounding because yeah. it, it's it's an amazing thing to watch. Lana will climb the crux of a route, be above her gear in the scary zone, get that moment of anxiety and do that grounding technique where she was talking about feeling the next hold and getting a feel for it, working out whether it's a good hold or not, feeling the textures, feeling the shapes, working out why she's scared of it. She'll touch that hold for ages. And then she'll down climb, 
through the entire cracks back below that bit of gear that she had and sit there for a while. And she might do that three or four times before you eventually go, well, it's not that bad, and do the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a process and it's, it's, not, great all, to watch. it's not always a flawless process. But honestly, <laughs> I, I will go on the record here. I will go on the record and say, I bet you I could out-downcline Dave Mack. I bet you my skills oh. are that strong. I could, I think I could out-downclimb him. Ooh. I think I could. I have done some bold downclimbing. Some bold downclimbing. I think I could do it. <laughs> well, I think we all recognise ourselves a little in that journey. I think we've all felt those same anxieties catching up with us from time to time. Most of us will just quietly try to suck it up and deal with it, which probably isn't the healthiest of approaches. So uh, a huge thank you to Lana for opening up and giving us that insight. And it's great to see the change in her climbing firsthand. As she's gone through this process, she's realised what climbing means to her. Her motivations have changed and she's become a much better and happier climber as, as a result. Uh, and again, if you recognise your own struggles there and want a little bit of advice, then please consider checking out episode two coming very soon. And remember, one of the ways to help manage some of that anxiety before you leave the ground? Always make sure you do your body checks.